0: Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday Show. I am Tim Miller with my bestie, Sarah Longwell. It's a gay pride lesbian extravaganza. We have Tammy Baldwin and we talk about being a lesbian in the 1980s on an elected lesbian in the 80s, which is insane. We talked about Kenosha. We talked about her Republican colleagues, Mike Gallagher. Any other takeaways, Sarah?
1: I appreciate some good punditing at pun the pun end. talking to us about why Mandela lost in Wisconsin, which an explanation I had not thought of or heard. So no, she was great. She was great. And I uh, have admired her for a long time. And so it was awesome to meet her. So far, I'm only doing the lesbian shows, which is starting to feel a little tokeny, you know? We'll try to get
0: you on with the homosexual, or maybe we'll invite someone on that's heterosexual at some point, though. Lame. Okay, we'll get to Tammy next. I wanted to do a quick little bit with you. J.B. Ellison here this week. And so I thought it'd be fun for our topper to talk about JVL's triad, which I'm sure you read earlier this week. It was Wednesday's triad. If you miss it, you can go back and find it. Headline is, it's morning in Joe Biden's America. Very subtle. <laughs> I'll just sum it up really quick for people that didn't read it. And then I just, you know, to just imitate JVL, I'm just going to put a quarter in and listen to you riff about it. And I thought we could kind of talk behind his back a little bit. So JVL's pitch here. For some reason, he must have had a good night's sleep or something. I don't know. Or maybe he's eating gummies because he was being positive for once. All right. He says that we've whipped inflation, maybe a little overstated, but inflation is down year over year and it's it's moving the right direction. And Jerome Powell this week did not raise rates for the first time, which is a sign that the Fed's feeling like things are good on that front or getting getting better on that front. Maybe manufacturing jobs are up above even above their pre-COVID level. Wage growth has now bounced back, so it's running ahead of inflation for the first time since you know the inflation spike. That is good news. He does note there are some areas where inflation is still persistent, particularly cars and fruits and vegetables. And I'm noticing it nuts, but I don't see it on here. Nuts are very expensive right now, weirdly. He also mentions on his puppy dogs and ice cream list that the rule of law is holding up. Joe Biden is acting appropriately, even though people are saying that this is a banana republic. The courts are doing their job. And even some Republicans are starting to act normal. Bill Barr, um, he compliments Asa Hutchinson's campaign. So JBL's pitch is that, like, things are kind of going great. Everybody is catastrophizing, but Biden's landing the plane on the economy. The Republicans are still crazy, but but maybe move, nudging the right direction. And and we should all just enjoy our summer. Sarah?
1: Yeah, I had skipped the triad.
0: Oh, no way.
1: In part because I was like, oh, JBL's doing Biden fanfic. This is fine. I don't need to read this one. Like, I know what he's, he's going to say. I ended up going back and, and reading it. And he's making a compelling case. You know, like JBL's doing a good job of sort of bringing together in aggregate the good news and putting it out there. But you know who's not doing that particularly effectively? I have a guess. The Biden administration. <laughs> right? Like, if this was Donald Trump's And he was working with these statistics here. He would be out there, you know, throwing T-shirts to the crowd saying best economy for black people, best economy for women. We're destroying China and just crowing and crying and crying. And I, I think to some degree it could be to Joe Biden's credit that he's a bit of a low key guy when it comes to crowing about accomplishments. And yet. I was just in Iowa yesterday. I was there with Judy Woodruff and PBS and I was moderating. All the news
0: was good at this focus group. Everybody was just ready to go back to Joe Biden's normal centrist future. Was that what you were hearing from the voters?
1: You want to talk about catastrophizing like they think the economy is in the toilet. Gas prices are astronomically high. Cost of housing astronomically high. Everybody cited the economy and open borders as the reason for why things were very, very bad. And now listen. I understand two-time Trump voters. These are not the people lining up to give Joe Biden credit. This is the thing about Americans, for whatever reason, we don't like to think that things are as good as they are. There are lots of people who are still feeling the pinch of inflation. It's true that inflation is down, but it is still up, you know, in terms of relatively from four years ago. And this is going to be Trump's big pitch. And this is what people were saying in a focus group. They're like, it was better, basically, before COVID when Trump was running things. Like, that economy was on fire and that was great. And so... I think they need to go out there and make this pitch really hard. Yeah, I
0: basically agree with that. On the first part, I And mean, I think that they're doing better lately. Uh, the Biden White House I mean, can always keep doing better. But just in this conversation we had with Senator Baldwin is a great example of this. I mean, she's working on a bipartisan thing with Vance right now, which they also did Chips infrastructure. We talked at length about the gay marriage deal, and it's just like... You forget. I mean, I, I literally I mean, I'm gay and was excited about the gay marriage thing, and I kind of forget about it. There isn't like a consistent effort to be like, oh, hey, remember these five bipartisan things that everybody likes that we did, you know, and bang them into the ground. Like that element of that is still just not where it needs to be. The inflation part, it was my nitpick with JBL. I mean, I get where he's coming from. It's good for those of us who are financially secure it's good, right? It's like things are moving in the right direction. It's still a little annoying when you go to the grocery store. I was there yesterday. I was like, I don't remember my bill being this high, right? You know, because inflation being down doesn't mean it's deflation. It just means that the inflation baseline is still the baseline, right? Uh, And so if your budget is tighter, like it's still tight. It's still stressful. That's stressful. And so that, I think, is the part that, in addition to Biden's age, it's kind of driving his numbers being not where they are. That said if it is true that we get to 2024 without a recession, like that's kind of unbelievable. And like literally every expert, my my father's in finance, right? And so I was talking about to him about this, we we had a brief beach vacation, which is why I was off the podcast last week. And he was like, every expert I talked to, forget politics, like all of my like finance experts, they're all like, we have to have a recession. Anytime this happens, we have a recession, right? Like that inflation gets to this level and that, you know, you have this sort of disruption. So if we avoid that, I mean, that is pretty, it's not like Joe Biden has a magic avoid recession wand, but like, you know, the Powell by, you know, all of that is like pretty remarkable and and they do deserve credit for it. And that's the side of the JBL thing, I think, that is right. It's like, but you got to figure out how do you message that to people who still are feeling the pinch a little bit?
1: Well, and it's a tricky one there because I think you have to tell people good news when you have it. At the same time, you have to be very careful not to be like a recession definitely isn't going to happen. Let's celebrate. Right. Because. This thing is like, we've been living on the brink for a long time, and if it goes south, you don't want to have taken a premature victory lap on that. That would be very bad. So I'm always on them about their communication. I think that it's hard for them, because I don't think Joe Biden's a particularly effective messenger. I think that they should be flooding things with surrogates, which I I just feel like they have never quite done for whatever reason. That said, it's got to be really hard, because you know who we talk about all the time?
0: Donald fucking Trump.
1: Donald Trump. Because the dude keeps getting indicted, and so like... JBL's writing this the day after the President of the United States gets historically indicted for the second time, and I appreciate JBL's valiant effort to talk to our centrist people about this, but at the end of the day, like... It's hard to break through. It's hard to break through if you're a 2024 challenger. And it's hard to break through if you're Joe Biden, man, because none of us can stop watching the Trump insane show.
0: Have you done swing groups at all? Or are we just primary time? We're totally in MAGA world.
1: Yeah, I haven't done a swing group in a really long time. And it's bad. I need to get back to it. Yeah. Although my favorite comments I get from people are they're like, stop doing the Trump groups. You know, you already know. Stop doing it. I'm like, we
0: don't know. They've changed a lot. Actually,
1: we don't know. We don't know, you know, and this Iowa focus group was pretty interesting. I asked people, so one of the guys had voted for Barack Obama and he was talking about how much he regretted that. And I asked the question of how many of them felt like they'd gotten more conservative over the last few years and everybody's hand yeah. went up. Like, that they just feel more committed all the time. I mean, the tribalism, we are, it is pushing people. Literally, the springs comes up over and over where one of the women said, we're not going back. Right. And what they mean is... This Trump direction, the Republican Party, like that is where they want to go. Everybody was super clear about that.
0: Yeah, I do want to see some swing groups. The two things I've been the most interested in, well, besides the Trump DeSantis thing, the two other things is one, this RFK thing. I wanted to get under the RFK numbers and be like, are those actually Democrats? Are they people that are just mad about Biden's age? Like, why is he in the high teens? And a poll just came out today that kind of answered this, right? It's like 40% of Republicans have a favorable view of him and 20% of Democrats do. And so I'm still kind of intrigued who that 20% is. So that's one area I want to go down. But the other thing is just this swing group. The fundamental question is, when Biden's numbers are bad with swing voters, is that he seems too old to do this job? Or is that I feel economically insecure still about inflation? Or is it both? And the old thing is kind of like, if it ends up being Trump, that's not going to be an issue. If it's the latter, that's more of a concern. So anyway, I'm giving you an assignment, boss. Do a swing group and answer that question for me.
1: I'll get right on it, man.
0: Okay. Up next is Senator Tammy Baldwin. You're going to enjoy this one. We'll be back on Wednesday. As you can see, when you watch the Tammy Baldwin interview, Sarah is looking very youthful and sun-kissed because she is on a brief holiday. So on Wednesday, we're going to have Amanda Carpenter on the next level, and then we'll get back to your normal next level schedule. So enjoy Tammy Baldwin. Thank you, Sarah. First, our friends at Acid Tongue. Hello and welcome to the Borg's Next Level Sunday podcast. I'm your host, Tim Miller. It's another special Gay Pride edition, all gays. I'm lucky to be here with my bestie, Sarah Longwell, and the only lesbian, full lesbian, I guess, Kristen Cinema, halfway there in the Senate, Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. Thank you so much for taking the time, Senator.
2: I'm delighted to.
0: Sarah, I want to put you on the spot here. You have a little story. You guys have a connection that maybe the senator might not be aware of.
1: Oh, well, certainly she remembers the time that we met back in 2012. Certainly. Well, I don't know if it was actually a gay event, but it was when you were first running for senator. You may know this about Tim, but we were both active Republicans in those days. And so you were the very first Democrat. I introduced myself to you and I said, you're the first Democrat i would ever donated to. And I was very excited about there being a lesbian, potentially, who could win a Senate seat. And... Now I give to Democrats all the time, because then Trump happened. But it was a real novelty when we first met.
0: Do you hear from many lesbian Republicans that donated to you? I mean, that's got to be a pretty short list.
2: (laughs) I do know a few, not a whole (laughs) lot.
0: (laughs) I want to start, I listened to a couple of your other podcasts, and I got to tell you, I was pretty well briefed on your political life, but I was kind of surprised a little bit about your origin story, if you will. So I was just wondering maybe you'd share that with some of our listeners who are in my boat, who didn't know... Kind of about your childhood and health issues growing up in Wisconsin, and I'd love just to hear a little—you know—just give us the a little nickel tour of your of your youth in Wisconsin.
2: Absolutely. So I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, raised by my maternal grandparents. My mother struggled with both mental illness and physical illness, and I was so very fortunate that my grandparents were there for me. Um, my grandfather was a professor at the University of Wisconsin. My grandmother thought she was an empty nester with her, both of her daughters, you know, out of the home. And she had gone uh, to work at the university also managing the costume lab at the theater department and teaching a lot of courses, et cetera. So I have these childhood images of being at my grandfather's laboratory, a biochemist, and then my grandmother's costume lab, a very different type of laboratory, if you will. But you're right. One of the formative things in my early life was a very serious childhood illness at age nine. And I was in the hospital for three months and my grandparents had insurance but didn't cover grandchildren. You know, you're not a legal dependent. And then as I got better, fully recovered, uh, they said, let's fix this. Let's get our health insurance. And, you know, back then, if you were somebody with a preexisting health condition, no insurance company had to cover you. And so I basically they couldn't find any insurance at any price. And so it wasn't until I was in college that I had a health policy. Um, it was a formative also in the way that I just felt that was wrong when I actually learned the story, because I can tell you when I was sick, my grandparents did not burden me with their worries. They were just there rallying by my side. But it became the issue that convinced me I want to change things and I want to have a role in in changing Healthcare policy. And so that's what brought me to public service. And first the county board, which believe it or not, actually dealt with some health policies back in the day. And then this progression from state level to national level office, where I've been able to, I think, make a real difference on that particular issue.
1: You know, when I was reading your bio, I was struck by the fact that you basically went what you went to college Smith, by the way, which is like pretty on the nose. And then
2: went to law school and then immediately ran for office, right? Was there any time in between? Um, So, yeah, I took like a gap year between college and law school. The jobs that I had were in state government. I was working in the governor's office and working on the issue of pay equity, equal pay for equal work, which there were some local initiatives to get the house in order, both in state government, but also local government. And I just remember this so vividly. I was a first-year law student, and my county board representative announced that she was going to retire. Now, I'm living right on campus at the time. And so when I say retire, she was like in her mid-20s and <sighs> didn't want to live on campus anymore after she had graduated. So so anyways, I was like, oh, wow, there's a real opportunity here. And I remember talking to one of my professors saying that I was thinking about this and gave me this really stern look. He said, you know, you could be a great lawyer if you applied yourself. And then there was this silence and then this twinkle in his eye. And he said, but if you insist on running for county board, you'll have my full support. And I was like, oh my God, yes. mm-hmm. uh, apply yourself. It's
0: not exactly like you're trying to take a job as a professional video game player or something. I mean, it was still the county board, <laughs> not nothing, you know, not lawyering, I guess.
2: This professor had a real impact on me. He was my, you know, when you're in law school, there are all these large lecture courses, but they try to give you one small course. So he was my small group professor, civil procedure, but he had in his day done an internship in a U.S. Senator's office. And I wasn't talking about running for U.S. Senate, by the way, I was talking about running for county board, but he had the bug and he absolutely understood why I was passionate about it. And and was very encouraging. Okay,
0: well, before we get into politics, I wanna continue down the you know first date path here a little bit. And um, anybody that's been on a gay first date knows that you've got to cover this. So you were coming out in Wisconsin in what, the early 80s? I, I How did that go? How did your family take that? Or maybe late 80s, I wanna improperly age you, but before it was quite common, I would think, in Wisconsin. So talk about that experience.
2: Yeah, so I came out while I was in college Junior year, kind of had super big crush, uh, sort of fell in love for the first time. And so, as you heard, I went to college out of state, Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, but always knew that I was coming home after college because my grandparents raised me. They were advancing in years. In fact, my grandfather passed away between my junior and senior year of college, and I wanted to be back in Madison, Wisconsin to be with my grandmother um, in case she needed me turns out she didn't really need me for many, many years. She was feisty, independent, very healthy, but I felt I needed to come back home. You know, so coming out to her and coming out to all of my high school friends who, um, you know, I was away when I was coming out, wasn't telling them in real time, sitting down with each of them. I couldn't be more fortunate with the reaction that I got. The one friend who was really mad at me was just mad at me for not telling her earlier. Like, Wait, what's this about?
0: Sarah was that person for me, actually. Sarah was mad at me. <laughs> yeah. She was upset she heard second in the office. That was her big complaint.
2: <laughs> I was, I was mad at him. Absolutely, and and so I was very fortunate and I chose my friends well, uh, and my mother was very supportive. In fact, my mother had more gay friends in Madison than I did, which was just like, but I didn't necessarily want to hang out with her gay friends. They were a generation older than me, yeah. fair. But but all of that said, I did have that time where I was interested in politics, interested in potentially running for office, and had that moment of, wow, can I actually do this if I'm out? Right. Do I have to make a choice between being out or pursuing my aspirations, my my dreams? And um, there were some people who had broken that barrier in Wisconsin prior to that. And so as I was like exploring running for office and working on other people's campaigns, I met Dick Wagner, who is probably my uh, foremost mentor. He was already on the county board. There were two out people on the Dane County Board of Supervisors. This is in the mid eighties where there were hardly any openly gay elected officials in the country. And I got to have two mentors right on my county board Yeah, I had a lot of support and, you know, answered that question. Do do I have to make a choice between being out or running for office? And it's like, no, I can do both and I can win. And that was remarkable. My congressman, Mark Pocan, who uh, is an out gay man in Congress, he sort of followed in my footsteps, I guess you could say. We were both on the county board together and then I ran for state legislature. He ran for my state assembly seat when I ran for Congress. And then he ran for my congressional seat when I ran for Senate. But I mentioned him because he was just reminding me the other day that there were more openly gay people in office in Dane County, Wisconsin, in the late 80s than there were in the entire state of California.
0: Wow. And
2: you would think that uh, maybe, you know, a state like California might have more openly gay elected officials. But we've been overtaken by California since then. But Madison, Wisconsin was a pretty special place in terms of being forward-thinking in terms of LGBTQ rights and policies and elected officials. I want
0: to do a Parks and Recreation-style show on the Gay <laughs> Dane County Board of, of 1985. Uh, was it 1994 that you proposed in the state legislature a gay marriage legalization bill? Is that right?
2: It sounds about mm-hmm. right. We, what I um, We were working sort of on dual tracks of marriage, as well as looking at domestic partnership legislation. You had
0: to get some nasty letters back then, I would imagine.
2: (laughs) Yes, there were some, but it was a really fascinating conversation. And, you know, certainly in 1996, when the Hawaii case was decided, it really became something on people's radar screens. For most people, (laughs) sadly, it was about introducing legislation to prevent it from happening here. But I was obviously leading an effort to talk about it proactively and saying, look, we need the tools to protect our families. You know, when you think of marriage, so many people think of the ceremony. But it's so important to recognize that when you get married, you then have available to you this set of legal tools that allows you to protect your spouse, protect your children. Without those tools, you're certainly more vulnerable, as is your family. You know, Tim and I are both in
1: one of these newfangled gay marriages.
0: And you're currently parenting on this podcast right now, so you might get to see the real deal here at some point.
1: Yeah, me and Nature Cat are doing the parenting (laughs) right now. When I was in my late 20s, I joined the Log Cabin Republicans because I wanted to get involved in, you know, marriage equality work and repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and One of the things that happened was I was like the youngest person there. It was like mostly men who were in their 60s and 70s. And one of the things that I don't think gets talked about enough is like our generation, we got to get all of the good stuff from it. And we also got to be at the tail end of the activist class. Like we were there as like pushing things over the goal line. But you guys, the generation ahead of us, you guys took all the arrows. Like by the time we came along, There were love is love t-shirts and, you know, like all the celebrities were on board. You guys were fighting the fight when it was extremely hard and it was a super uphill battle. And I don't think that generations get thanked enough for what they did, how much work they put in and the personal risk that they took. And so I just really appreciate it because we do now get to live that life that you imagined to take care of our families.
0: Yeah. I I was going to say that's sweet. Sometimes awkward to be like, well, thank you. I am great. But we do appreciate that. And thank you. I have a less sweet comment. Uh, I attacked you despite all your work as, uh, you know, somebody that uh, was doing this way before I was comfortable doing it. Attacked is maybe an overstatement. But two years ago, or I guess last year, when you were doing the Respect for Marriage Act, Updating this work that started in the mid-90s that now goes all the way to 2023 where this threat or 2022 where this threat is out there again, you know, maybe wanting to shore out the possibility of the threat after the Roe v. Wade decision. I, on strategic grounds, was like, that Senator Baldwin is being too nice to these Republicans by letting them off the hook by letting them vote for this after the election. And, you know, we should jam it down their throats. And I've got the bitterness I have about my former Republican friends. What I wanted to hear from you is kind of the, that process, the strategic approach in 2022. Did you feel like you had the votes? Were there Republicans saying they'd only do it after the election? And, and you know, did that end up being harder, or easier than you thought? I, I just would like your impressions from that yeah. you know, kind of debate last year. It was a big bipartisan win on a list of them that, that Biden yeah. doesn't get enough credit for.
2: I felt confident that we had the votes, but there are procedure, you know, the Senate, all the procedure, et cetera. I was told very clearly that uh, we would not have the votes to get onto the bill if we brought it up before the election. So some of the same people who said they would be voting for it said, I will not vote to advance onto the bill for debate if you have this vote before the election. And like, OK, but when we bring it up after the election, are you a yes on passage? And, the you know, yes. So it's vote counting. And the question is, do you want to be able to say whose side everyone's on and have the political fodder prior to the election? Or do you want the win? And I wanted the win. I can't tell you how <laughs> how vehemently I felt about that, because I was hearing from folks who weren't sleeping at night because they were so worried about uh, losing recognition of their marriages and, you know, so hard fought. And so, yeah, I wanted the win. There are times where I would say, let's bring a bill up knowing that it's going to lose so we can show whose side people are on, right? But this wasn't one of them.
1: By the way, what he meant to say in there, was he sorry for criticizing you? I may, may not have come through. Did I say he that? May, did, I not, you know,
0: did, I, did I not say the word sorry?
1: That didn't quite come through, but I just hmm. want to make sure that... I thought sure it was that,
0: implied that I was wrong, but okay, no. <laughs> go ahead. Thank you for clarifying.
1: So you must have had faith that they were telling you the truth. Like, that was sort of a leap of faith, right? And so have you built the kind of relationships with your colleagues in the Senate that you were sure that the guesses that they were giving you were real ones and not an attempt to just pull the carpet out from under you when it was after session?
2: So, yes, I feel like with some of the the dozen that came with us to pass this bill, that I, I have now a longer relationship. We've worked on all sorts of other legislation together. When they give their word, they, they mean it. I will tell you with regard to this particular vote counting effort, a lot of folks said what they said in the presence of other supporters, so the key gang that was working on gathering the votes. And so basically, as we were moving towards a vote on bringing this to the floor before the election, and I was with several of the other organizers on this bill, and my a couple of my Republican colleagues said, um, I'm a yes on the bill, but not if it's before the election. And so... It was witnessed by <laughs> more than just me.
0: Did you slap any of them when they said that or want to, like, throw a, you know, hit them in the face with a pie?
2: <laughs> there was no physical violence okay. <laughs> involved.
0: But what about in your mind? Did you envision that maybe, that what it would feel like? <laughs> I'll only support your marriage after the election. That's an intriguing position. We appreciate their support, but it's <laughs> a, it's an intriguing position for sure. When Sarah and I were talking about this, you know, we should ask you about being a moderate Democrat. And then we were like, well, does she define herself as a moderate? And so I thought that it might just be interesting to hear your view on that. How you kind of define your politics these days is obviously the kind of rug has moved from under us a little bit in certain ways, probably since you were first in politics. I was kind of wondering how you define where you fit in the political system these days.
2: That's interesting. So I use the word progressive a lot. But, you know, I don't know if you can see my back scenery here, but there's a little bobblehead right there. That's fighting Bob LaFollette. He was (laughs) um, a senator at the turn of the last century. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I'm in his Senate seat. He was a Republican. He was elected as a Republican and then founded the progressive movement. These words sort of changed in meaning over time. But I am a big fan, if you will, of fighting Bob LaFollette. He was... In his time a feminist, he you know, stood up against the monopolies of the day, the freight right. rail uh, systems, and in fact his first his maiden speech in the Senate, you know, they make a big deal of the maiden speech. And I, when I was about to give buying, I researched many of the people who had served Wisconsin before. What did they talk about in their maiden speech? Fighting Bob LaFollette, his maiden speech was about regulating the freight rail, and it took place over three days. <laughs> when I gave mine, I said, I promise you, this will not take even an entire day, let alone three continuous days. But anyways, because it means something in Wisconsin, because Wisconsin was sort of the place where Republicans created the progressive movement, the progressive party I view myself as a progressive. And a lot of that has to do with focus on helping working people get ahead. Yeah. Um, I know Wisconsin to be a place that doesn't
1: always elect progressives. And so in my mind, and and maybe it's maybe a a moderate temperament, because I think sometimes people can sort of read moderate because they have a way of, I think you emphasize your bipartisan nature. You could tell me, but you seem like somebody that the Republicans would come potentially seek out to talk to, to figure out how to work together. And and so maybe that's how I'm thinking of it. But like, do you lean into that progressive? Because you're about to have a race. It's coming up. And do you walk some of that back as you go into election mode? Or do you sort of trust that people see you for who you are in Wisconsin? They like you, they know you, and they're going to go with you
2: because they just feel like they can trust you and like you. Gosh, it's it's so interesting. So the last time I was on the ballot was in 2018, the midterms. Good year for you guys. Yeah. Two years after President Trump was elected. And I remember as I was traveling the state, meeting my first Trump-Baldwin voters. (laughs) And Sarah, I'm getting to an answer to your question, but it was sort of like, okay, (laughs) who are these people, you know, that would vote for Donald Trump and then vote for Tammy Baldwin? And in many cases, it was folks who had not felt really seen and heard, but hardworking folks who felt he saw them and felt I did. But I remember still to this day, this conversation with a guy who I was visiting his workplace. He was a union worker at a foundry, sees me and he's like, why do you keep picking on my guy, Trump? And I'm like, I was just taken aback. Why do you keep picking on Donald Trump, my guy? And I'm like, well, sometimes he deserves it. And Maybe there's a little (laughs) grin that he made, but not much. And somebody comes up to him afterwards and says, you know, okay, so you're a big Trump fan. What do you think of Baldwin? And he's like, oh, she's got my vote. She supports Buy America policies. And I wouldn't have a job if there weren't Buy America policies. But that was an overlap between Donald Trump and Tammy Baldwin was, you know, both really focused on Buy America policies, which in a big manufacturing state and agriculture state like Wisconsin... Matters, and so in my mind, it's progressive policy. But I would say that it was something that people saw. It. I'm not saying there's a huge overlap; probably ten percent, but it matters.
0: <laughs> no, it's crucial, and I'd like to hear you say that because oftentimes when somebody says the word moderate, and you're talking about who are the moderate voters you're trying to reach out to, the first person that comes to mind in people's minds' eye is like the bulwark voter, right? It's a suburban, you know, kind of maybe socially, culturally a little bit liberal, you know, but has some fiscal conservative sides. Right, like that's the image in your head when you hear the word moderate. A lot of folks, but there may be even fewer of us. It's similar, but like there may be even fewer of us than there are the person you're talking about, right? Like the inverse moderate. And I, and I think there's certain Democrats that struggle at trying to reach out to the culturally conservative, economically liberal moderate. Right. And and I think the Democrats have lost a lot of ground with those voters and they're very important in your state. And so how do you kind of manage that? You're thinking getting to those folks, but I also got to do a little better in the Wow counties. You know, like how do you manage both of those types of voter?
2: Yeah. Let me start with another divide that you see in Wisconsin that's been written a lot about, especially post-2016 when Trump did win the state, is an urban-rural divide. And I think we've seen our rural counties become redder and redder. But I think it's one of those situations where showing up matters, seeing people, hearing people, respecting people, no matter where they live in the state. We're a rural state in so many regards, although we have a couple of bigger cities, just a couple, right? And so I think understanding that is also key, not just understanding the Democrat-Republican divide. Now, going to the Wow counties, and I'm glad you mentioned the Wow counties, for those folks who are tuned in, those are what we call the three counties that surround Milwaukee County. Washington County, Ozaukee County, Waukesha County are the Wow counties. And they're deep red, but they're becoming more purple, if you will. And we saw that, especially in a nonpartisan race we just had for April 4th, these are nonpartisan, usually local, but there was one statewide race on the ballot, and that was for an impending vacancy on our state Supreme Court. And the candidate who I think would be described as the progressive candidate in the field, Janet Pronasewitz, won with nearly an 11-point, well, I think over an 11-point margin. And really, in the Wow counties, we saw a significant depth of support there for her that we hadn't seen. Now, granted, she didn't have a D after her name and her opponent didn't have an R after his, but everybody knew this was about rights and freedoms. And that since the Dobbs decision, when Wisconsin reverted to being controlled by a law that was passed in 1849, and I did not misspeak, I met 1849, our criminal abortion ban, that has had a huge impact in Wisconsin, and people were voting their rights and freedoms and saying, we want our rights and freedoms back. And they connected the dots that a vote for Janet would be a vote to at least uh, have a prospect in the court of a fair decision in reviewing that law and several others.
1: So I have a question about your colleague, Mike Gallagher. Or I guess he's not your colleague. He's in Congress. Well, and if he represents part of the state that I
2: represent. So yes, we work together on things. So he's your
1: colleague. Yeah. So Mike Gallagher is like, he's, he's always been my counter-Republican. I love me some Mike Gallagher. I and mean, then I've been a little frustrated with him of late. He was somebody who spoke out really strongly during the attack on the Capitol, but then didn't impeach Trump. And I was like, OK, he's positioning himself because he wants to run for Senate. He knows he can't vote to impeach Trump and then run for Senate. But he just took a pass on running, which is a trend in the Republican Party of people who are, I think, pretty electable Republicans at statewide levels. Um, you saw this with Sunuya. You saw this with Larry Hogan, people who just said, I'm not going to run for Senate because he didn't say why. But I suspect it has something to do the with
0: Republican primary,
1: the current problem. Yeah, the current problem in a Republican primary with the Republican Party were you relieved that he wasn't running or were yeah, you <laughs> with
0: us on Mike Gallagher? Because
1: he would have been formidable. Or
2: do you think he couldn't have gotten through a republic? Do some rank country with me. Yeah. OK, so let me start with the point you were first making is when there are only two statewide races on the ballot, as there are next year in Wisconsin, the presidency and this U.S. Senate seat, I would imagine anybody eyeing getting into the Republican primary to run for U.S. Senate. Is wondering who is going to be the presidential nominee, right? If you're full MAGA, that's going to be an attractive thing, right? Uh, Oh, I'll run for US Senate and I can share the stage with Donald Trump. We're hosting the Republican National Convention next year in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's very clear that there's a big target on trying to win back Wisconsin for the national Republicans. And so I've just got to think anybody who's thinking about getting into the race is realizing how closely tied their fortune will be to that Republican nominee for president. But back to Mike Gallagher, uh, he has been somebody who I've been able to work with, I think, very constructively on especially issues within his district. He represents a district on Lake Michigan that has a shipyard. He's on the House Armed Services Committee. I'm on the Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. So, making sure that they keep on building ships for the Navy has been an effort that we've paired up on occasionally when necessary. And I would say there's any number of parochial issues that affect his congressional district and the state that I represent where it's good to be able to work together. What about
0: the China Select Committee? What's your take on that?
2: So, certainly, what a plum assignment for him. And he's doing a good job. I'm glad that the House is paying attention to issues. I have been sort of with that focus for a long time. When I was in the House of Representatives, I was one of the ones who voted against permanent normalized trade relations with China, PNT. So I have a long history (laughs) on doing this, but I'm glad that there's more focused attention. We got to get it right. I don't want the tensions to become so high that we're dangerous. But I do think we have to be eyes wide open with the fact that in economic competition, there is not a level playing field. And it for a state like Wisconsin has meant a lot of job loss because they can either dump product in the U.S. and drive folks out of business or multinational businesses have actually just moved the jobs from from Wisconsin to China. Something that we need to be on top of. I gotta ask
0: you about one more issue about coming from the left, um, since we have you. I mean, I think that if you look at Mandela's loss, I think there are a lot of explanations for it. You know, maybe resources, and uh, I think there are a lot of you know, I should go. end up being very close, Uh, but one that really stuck out is essentially what happened in Kenosha. You see his numbers that go down. I think that you have in that part of the state. You know, you had what was really wrong. Like, uh, obviously, the police behavior was wrong, but the rioting and and the treatment of local businesses and stuff was wrong. And I think that a lot of Democrats, maybe progressive activists more than Democrats, got a little bit out over their skis on not speaking clearly, you know, about those riots and, you know, wanting to make sure that, okay, even if we have concerns about police brutality, you know, there are certain things that we can't be doing to our fellow members of our state. I'm just wondering how you see that issue and, you know, whether... Because obviously, I think that's going to be something they come out with you on, uh, just like they did Mandela.
2: Yeah, so um, speaking with clarity is very important. And condemning violence, condemning the type of you know looting and destruction that took place is important, as is, and again, to be really clear on an issue, as is important to talk about the type of instances that we were seeing far too often, whether it was George Floyd, Or what was unfolding, frankly, across the country with disturbing frequency. And I think you have to be able to take each separately. Obviously, there's a right to protest, there's a right to speak out, does not entail violence and looting and the sort of thing we saw in Kenosha. You know, we've seen too much of this as a country, you know, whether it's that or, or, you know, what we saw on January 6th. There's no place for things going beyond the articulation of one's grievances. Let me also just add uh, that i'm I would point to different set of factors in that u s Senate race. Uh, you know, I know there's a number of folks who were saying this was about issues. I think given how close that race was, one of the things that happened in the closing weeks was Publication of some public polls that were just way off.
0: He's going to lose by ten.
2: And uh, if you have a couple of newspapers saying in Wisconsin is down six or seven points, and you're deciding where you're going to write your last check, is it going to be for John Fetterman? Is it going to be for Raphael Warnock? Is it going to be for Catherine Cortez Masto? And the newspapers, I think, after the fact, and it's sadly after the fact, said, "Yeah, we got it wrong. We published some polls that just." weren't accurate in the end. And uh, it took a lot of wind out of the sails. And so I think that actually played a, a pretty prominent role, especially given how close it actually was.
0: Sarah, Senator bowling has got to do some real senatoring and we got to get to our rapid fire. It's the Fun Weekend podcast. So do you have a final question for any other burning things you've been wanting to hear before we get to the rapid fire?
1: No, I just want to say that was A-plus pundit ring. I learned some things. I didn't. <laughs> you have a
0: career in our business yeah. if it goes wrong next November.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I don't. I promise you I don't. I'm just going to ask a little question, which is as somebody who wanted to run for political office, but actually thought I couldn't run as an out lesbian Republican. I'm pretty inspired by the fact that you like went for it at a time where it seemed like maybe it wouldn't happen for you. So like, what advice do you give people
2: who want to get into politics, but, you know, aren't sure if they should do it for one reason or another? certainly anything I can say to get rid of those anxieties and inhibitions. So I got started very early on. I was 24 when I was sworn into the county board. I just sort of dove in in terms of volunteering on other people's campaigns. And, you know, while I had studied government in college and got my degree, double double major in mathematics and government, but there's no substitute for just getting in there. So I was doing doors for other people, sort of getting the feel of what it feels like to engage with voters. I was helping a few candidates for local office organize their campaigns. They were pretty new at it, too. And sort of. And as you know from my background, I started at super local politics and not necessarily with the view that someday I was going to be in much higher office, but was encouraged to take that stepladder approach. So county board, state assembly. So my first constituency on the county board, 10,000 people. I represented 50,000 people when I was in the state assembly, 700,000 when I was in the House of Representatives. But just dive in and maybe you start by working on other people's campaigns just to demystify it, to understand how it works. As a woman in politics, I get some of this innately, but a lot of women also doubt their mastery of the issues and will often not dive in because they don't know everything yet. (laughs) It was like, well, I'll wait until I've studied everything that could come before the Dane County Board of Supervisors. And sometimes our male counterparts just, you know, oh, I'll wing it. I'll be fine. <laughs> so, so I would also, as a young woman, say, you do not have to know everything. You have to understand your core set of values and then just go for it.
0: <laughs> that is great advice. Okay. We're moving to the rapid fire round. We're running out of time. Senator Baldwin, the first one, everyone gets it. Something you've changed your mind on since entering politics.
2: Oh gosh, there's so many. There was a local issue. I opposed building the um, Frank Lloyd Wright designed convention center in downtown Madison. It was in my district. I actually ran on, we can't have it. It is the most beautiful building in downtown Madison, except for the Capitol. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Sometimes public investment is good. Okay. Obama famously said that you drink a beer with Mitch McConnell if you want, if you want bipartisanship so much. So what is a Republican senator that you would most like to drink beers with? I know you're a beer drinker.
2: I am. You have to support your uh, Wisconsin businesses. Uh, oh, boy. Tom Tillis. Everybody picks Tom Tillis.
0: He must be a nice guy. He's, I think Chris Murphy also picked Tom Tillis. Okay. Um,
2: <laughs> I can pick another one if you don't want it. You know, uh, Dan Sullivan. <laughs>
0: Dan Sullivan. He seems like a guy to drink a beer with. I have some complaints, but we'll get to that in another episode. Okay. It's Gay Pride Month. Your LGBTQ American Mount Rushmore. I need four LGBTQ Americans to put on Mount Rushmore. Ready?
2: Oh my goodness. Okay, Harvey Milk, Elaine Noble. Um...
0: This is why I do this so I can Google people. <laughs> Who is the third one?
2: Barney Frank. <laughs> oh,
0: Barney Frank. <laughs>
2: um, Steve Gunderson, a Wisconsinite.
0: That's a good pick for local bias. I'll have to say, this is no shame on you. This is like the third or fourth person I've asked this. Someone commented, no one has yet said James Baldwin. That is horrible. It's my fault, not yours. I didn't put him on mine either. So I'm kicking Harvey Milk off mine. He's, he did a great job, but James Baldwin's got to be on there. Okay. Your most stereotypically lesbian personality trait? Um, do you wear fingerless gloves? Do you like to chop wood?
2: Oh, I like power tools. I Power do, I,
0: tools. I, power you like tools, power sports. tools. Great one. Okay. Final question. for If people want to come to Wisconsin, we hear about Madison. You hear about Lambeau Field. What is a town, restaurant, park in Wisconsin that people don't know about that we should come visit?
2: Oh, uh, hike the Ice Age Trail.
0: I I don't even know what that is. That's a good Google. Hiking the Ice Age Trail. That's also maybe a stereotypically lesbian trait. Okay, (laughs) final bonus when we're out of time. Who do you want to run against next year, and why is it Sheriff David Clark?
2: (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um... Wow. They get to sort that out themselves.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for the time, Senator Baldwin. It's really great to have you. If you have other stuff that's relevant for the bulwarky wow crowd audience, you know, tell the staff to keep in touch. And I did not get to the fact that you are currently working on a label American bill with J.D. Vance.
2: Cool online. Cool online. Tree of origin labeling online.
0: This is your bipartisan cred. You're so bipartisan, you'll even work with J.D. Vance. So um, we appreciate you for doing that and for coming on the show. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.